0: Welcome to um, Second Media Agenda Talk. I'm glad to see that uh, you're sticking with the program. Um, just a couple of uh, little announcements before we get to tonight's business. Firstly, that for those of you with enough stamina, don't forget that there is another event at 6.30 when Prof- Professor Robin Mansell is giving a lecture about her book, her new book about Imagining the Internet. Policy challenges, and that's at the new academic building. So when we finish at about 6, 6, 6 or 6:15, you need to get the hell out of here if you're going to that and get across to the new academic building. It's going to be a very, very good event, very good lecture, and obviously Robin, some will be teaching some of you as well. So I do recommend that if you can, if you have the strength. Don't forget also that some of you have signed up for. Um, the lunchtime seminar tomorrow, looking at um, Israeli politics. Um, Let me know if you're not coming. Um, And next week, keep an eye on your emails, because we've got a really, really interesting surprise seminar coming up next week, which is a sort of very exclusive and unexpected event. Um, I shall tell you no more. But it's got a kind of royal flavor to it. but tonight, tonight we are, we are in the presence of somebody who has been in the presence of almost royalty. Uh, somebody, who's worked, somebody who's worked at uh, number 10 as uh, chief speechwriter for uh, well Tony Blair, but um, has also served uh, other Labour leaders as well. Phil Collins has got an interesting personal life, started off He worked in the city at one point. He went to work for one think tank called the Social Market Foundation, um, then went to work uh, for for New Labour uh, at a time when, as you all know, uh, in a sense it was reinventing political uh, communications in the UK. Phil was part of that experience, and he now works at uh, the Times as a political columnist. So Phil is going to be talking about the art of great speech making, but in your questions feel free to uh, quiz him about some of that politics and some of those personalities that he's been involved in. But it's a real pleasure to welcome Phil Collins. Over to you, Phil. Charlie, thank you very
1: much. Thank you for the invitation. Um, when you said uh, that I had a very interesting personal life. I was beginning to wonder where you were going to go with that. Um, I began to wonder how you knew all about that stuff. Um, I had my retaliation ready made because I know who your mystery guest is next week and any word out of place from him and I'll just tell them. I want to talk to you about great speeches, about what makes for a great speech and and why great speeches are more rare these days than they used to be, but why it's difficult to do a, a great speech. Uh, Along the way I'm going to try and give you a few tips about how to communicate better Um, because over the years I've done this now for lots of corporate people and lots of politicians around the world, I've distilled a few notions about what it is that makes good communication and this is true of communication when you're standing with a few people in a hall talking in a company as it is standing up on a podium with a very large crowd doing a political set piece speech. There's lots of things that are different in those contexts, but there are also some things which are the same. And so I'll give you uh, a quick guide to what I think is the way to be better. I can never promise that people will be wonderful, but I can promise that you'll be at least mediocre. (laughs) You will never be bad if you follow the the precepts. And, And for lots of people, being mediocre is something to aspire to. It's something they try to attain. Most people are very frightened about speaking in public, and they fear that they're terrible at it. And then you get a small percentage of people who love doing it and think they're wonderful. And it's almost always the case that neither is true. It's almost always the case that you're not as bad as you think you are if you are in the first category. And it's very likely the case that you're not as good as you think you are if you are in the second category. Most of us are somewhere in the middle. And I just want to give you a few tips to help you uh, be more confident with the material you have, which is the key to being good. Let me start by just saying what I think are the components of a great speech. I think there are three, and they're all linked, and you need all three in order to produce something which is of the highest caliber. You need an argument, you need great writing, and you need a great occasion. You can't control all of those, and the elusive element, the thing which is missing often these days, is a sense of history, a great occasion on which the speech is made, or a great injustice that demands redress. So even if you can't guarantee a speech that's wonderful, you can learn good technique. Good technique, as a La Rochefoucauld once said, is what genius has in common with mediocrity. So I want to take the three components in turn, the argument, the writing, and the occasion. And these are categories that I've adopted from Aristotle's treatise on rhetoric, which is still the great source for the classical study of rhetoric. And every writer since has got some variant on Aristotle's schema of rhetoric. (coughs) Firstly, says Aristotle, there is ethos, which is how the character of a speaker is conveyed. That's how the audience is beguiled into thinking about that speaker. That's what I'm going to call the writing. How do you give a character in the course of speaking? Second, says Aristotle, there is pathos. That's the emotion that surrounds the occasion. The sentiments that are within the occasion. And I'm going to call this the sense of occasion or the historic moment. And the third element is the one that Aristotle thought was absolutely the most important. That's what he calls logos. Cicero calls it the topic. And that's the use of reasoning to construct a line of argument. So that's what I'll call it. I'll refer to it as argument. So those are the three components of a great speech. Now just a note about that third precept of argument. It implies a conversation. It implies an interlocutor. And a good speech is actually a dialogue that just looks like a monologue. It looks like I'm up here on my own, speaking uninterrupted. But actually, within the argument, there should be a dialogue. I should be arguing as though with someone else. It's a staged argument. The alternative argument is hidden within what you're saying, but it shouldn't be something that no one can disagree with. If you say something, that nobody could ever disagree with, then you're saying something very banal and flat, and no serious argument will take place. There always has to be something that somebody up there in the audience might think, I'm not sure I agree with that. And if there isn't, you're not saying anything. It's this element, the seat of the argument, that Aristotle said matters more than anything else. A good speech, as Arthur Miller once said, is like an organism. If you take any part of it out, the whole will be diminished. But I want to put the three components in a different order. I want to say that the reason I think there are fewer great speeches these days than there were is not that nobody's capable of good writing anymore. It's not that nobody can think well. It's just that there are fewer occasions on which great rhetoric is demanded. There are fewer causes worthy of great public rhetoric. So I'm going to take as the main thing and that's going to be the main reason I think there are fewer great speeches but let's think about the central proposition that Aristotle had first about the argument here's where I want to distill what I think I've learned from doing it and seeing people do my speeches either well or badly and in questions I'm quite happy to come back to people who have done it badly because it's always more interesting than people who have done it well there are essentially six things I think that we need to learn And in chronological order, as you're sitting down to prepare the script, firstly, think hard about the audience. Who is it that you're talking to? What do they think already? What do you know about them? What level of intelligence can you expect from them? What level of information do they already have about your subject? You've got to be sure that you get your register appropriate to those people. If you go in too high with an audience that doesn't know what you're talking about, you'll not connect with them at all. Equally, if you go in too low, with an audience which is highly intelligent, you'll patronize them. So you have to be aware what is the appropriate register for your audience. Can you risk a whole series of references to Aristotle, for example? I think on this occasion you can. But you make a kind of implicit judgment about the audience you're talking to. Secondly, what are your expectations for the speech you're giving them? There's only three types of address, really. There's an informative speech where your task is to give some information to the audience. So they go away informed of something that is useful to them that they didn't already know. And this part of this speech is simply me relaying some information to you, which you may or may not think is useful, but that's my function. The second type of speech is a persuasive speech, where I try and persuade you of something you don't already think, so that by the time I've done with you, you've changed your mind on something important. And the third type of speech is an inspirational speech, where I'm trying to bind you to something, and I'm trying to get you to do something that you weren't inclined to do before I began. Now, almost all speeches will have elements of the three components, but you should always be clear which is your primary task. Are you essentially trying to inform your audience, or are you primarily trying to persuade them, or is it mostly about inspiring them? And that will help you select the material. What are your expectations for the speech? What are you trying to achieve? The third thing is this question of the topic and the argument, which I'm going to come back to in a moment. The fourth thing is about the language you use, about the actual writing. Most writers start writing far too early. Speech writing is mostly about thinking before writing and then about editing after writing. The actual writing bit in the middle should be relatively easy. You should spend the bulk of your time contemplating your argument, working out what is it, in a nutshell I'm trying to say You should be able to write it on a post-it note. This is my argument. It should be a proposition or or at least a question that you're going to supply an answer to. And that should then govern all the material that you select. Before you've got that, you're not ready to write. And most people start writing far too early. They just have a load of stuff, a load of words. but They don't have an argument. There's a lovely Uh, analogy for writing that Jacob Epstein, the sculptor, (coughs) once used. He he did a a bust of Ernest Bevin, the Labour Foreign Secretary, and he was asked, how do you get such an amazing likeness of Ernest Bevin? And he said, well, what I do is I just take a block of marble, and I chip away every bit that doesn't look like Ernest Bevin. (laughs) (laughs) And some people write like that. It's as though they get a dictionary, and then try and take away the words they don't need. And you can't really write like that. It's, It's disordered. You need to have a sense of where you're heading so you can select the right material. Then, fifthly, there's the individual, there's you. There's gotta be a sense of the person in this speech. In the moment, what I'm describing is composition. I'm describing an essay. But for this to become speech, it has to have a sense of an individual who's about to deliver it. And there's all sorts of ways in which you get yourself into the process. And then finally, there's a trick of actually delivering the thing on the day, when you stand up and, and speak it. And the crucial thing, is it should not be your first time hearing it when you actually stand up there and start to speak. For so many people, they haven't rehearsed at all, and they stand up and they start to speak, and this is the first time it's ever come out of their mouth. And that's extraordinary, because when you speak, you can hear sentences that don't work in a way that you can't necessarily when you see it on the page. When you're writing an essay, you must have had the experience of saying something on page four, which you then realize you say again on page nine. When you say them out loud, you can't do that because you immediately think, I've said that before, and then you bring them together. So speaking is a wonderful form of editing. So speaking early in the process helps writing, and so few people speak it out loud, which was something which is designed for speech, is an extraordinary omission, but it's very common, and that's the best form of (coughs) writing, to, to learn to stand up and speak it. What you find also when you do that is you begin to learn it. You begin to learn it. Anyone who saw Ed Miliband speaking to the Labour Party conference will probably have thought, what a remarkable feat of memory. Actually, it's no big deal. Politicians used to do four-hour speeches from memory in the 19th century because during the process of preparation, if you're doing it properly, you will commit huge chunks of what you've prepared to memory, almost without trying. If you are then trying on purpose in order to get people to write to the newspaper that you've done a great feat of memory, then you'll add in sessions of preparation but he will have had loads of that in his head just through the process of writing in any case as we all do still got, I can cite huge chunks of speeches I've worked on just because it's hard to get rid of them once you've done, gone over them so often so let me come back to that one I, I left uh, on Adorn, the argument this shouldn't really need saying but it always does you've got to know what your argument, argument is you've got to be able to summarise it in a sentence Now my argument tonight is that speeches need to have a clear line, good writing, and address a serious issue. And if any one of those three is missing, then a speech might be good, but it's never going to be great. But it's amazing how many speeches don't have a clear argument. Or they have fragments of an argument. A suggestion here, a hint there, but not a real argument that drives all the way through. And the reason those speeches don't work is that the writer has not stopped to work out what their central idea is. And none of them are developed into the dominant motif of the speech. If you don't have that, it's very hard to know what materials to select. It's hard to know what facts you want. It's hard to know what supporting arguments you should be looking for. And the moment you know you've matured as a writer is when you delete a really good line because you know it's not relevant. It's very hard to do, especially when you're starting and you love a line and it's precious to you and you become attached to it but you know it doesn't strike off your main argument. It's not really relevant, so it has to go. You have to become ruthless about it. You have to kill it off. It's always harder to do that with a joke, and most jokes that people insert into speeches are not strictly relevant to the argument, and if you're really tough with yourself, you'll take them out and get rid of them. And If you have comedy in a speech, it should flow from the argument, not depart from the argument. And this is the context in which we have to think about the soundbite. Because the way in which you capture your argument as vividly as possible is what's come to be known in a slightly derogatory term as the soundbite. But there's nothing new about this. To be or not to be, that is the question. And it is the question. It is absolutely the question of the play. It's the soundbite. That's the bit that would have been clipped on the news. That's the bit that Alistair Campbell would have said, we're going to have that bit on the news. Because when you're doing a political speech, you are going to get six seconds on the news, whether you like it or not. So you might as well have the best possible encapsulation of your idea for the news bulletins. And it's a good discipline in any case to try and think, what is my central argument, and what's the best phrase I can think of to describe it? It's a very good way of forcing the discipline, of sticking to that central argument. Let me move on to the second element of a really good speech, which is the writing. Now, the connection between thinking and writing has been noted very many times. And I find it quite hard even to think at all without writing it down. I think when I write. So I often find my thoughts through writing. I sort of think of writing as arguing silently. And that's the origin of of rhetoric as a classical discipline, in fact. It evolved as an act of persuasion, but also of discovery. And the classical philosophers thought the skilled use of rhetoric helped to unearth the truth. And that's what originally a speech was trying to do. Now, it also, rhetoric from the very beginning had another connotation, which was that of being duplicitous. And Aristophanes talks of Plato's cloudy rhetoric as though it were a set of lies, so we've always got this dual meaning in rhetoric. It was a search for truth. At the same time, it was the attempt to pull the wool over your eyes and to persuade you of something that wasn't true. But above all else, just try to be clear. Your writing style has got to try and give an argument, not to get in the way of an argument. And people always, often used to ask me when I was writing speeches, where do you get your ideas from? I was always tempted to say what the poet Philip Larkin said when he was asked the same question. He said, someone asked him, how did you find the metaphor of a toad to stand for work? And he replied, sheer genius. (laughs) And the truth is actually that I borrowed them all. And a good writing style comes from reading. And most writers are readers before they're writers and they're constant readers. And reading off the subject is crucial. And reading people for the love of their prose is absolutely crucial. That's more important than getting the information from them. It's the music they are after. I mean, Scott Fitzgerald once said that a good style doesn't form unless you absorb six good authors every year. And in the amalgam of all those great writers, you find yourself discovering a style. And so there's no shortcut. When everyone people ask you how to write, the only answer is that you must read. And you must read, as far as you can, writers for the love of writing, not just for the love of information. So all of those things really count, and they're all vital when you're constructing a great speech. But in the end, I think it's the pathos that really matters. And I want to illustrate that by giving you three short stretches of great rhetorical writing. And only only the third is from a conventional speech. The first was an inscription on a banner in Belfast, As the funeral cortege of the footballer George Best went through the streets. And somebody in the crowd had written on a banner Maradona good, Pele better, George Best. Now, that's a beautiful piece of witty, concise, moving writing. Six words, but it says such a lot. And it proves to us something the Gettysburg Address also proves, which is you don't need to talk for long to get a lot said. Lincoln spoke for 2 minutes, 45 seconds. The guy before him spoke for 4 hours, 23 minutes. But it's Lincoln who's the one who's remembered. Because the guy before had nothing to say and just a lot of time to say it in. Because Lincoln had a real message with a beautiful poetic ending that encapsulated it. And it's a speech that's in all the anthologies. The second passage is from... Clive James, his essay on Sophie Scholl. Sophie Scholl was a young woman who joined her brother Hans in a resistance movement called the White Rose in the Second World War. And Hans Scholl was sentenced to death for upholding his principles, as he knew he would be. And Clive James then produces the following devastating piece of rhetoric You would have thought to, the, to be as good as Hans Scholl was as good as you could get. He did what he did through no compulsion except an inner imperative, in the full knowledge that he would perish horribly if he were caught. Yet if moral integrity can be conceived of as a competition, Sophie left even Hans behind. Hans tried to keep her ignorant of what he was up to, but when she found out, she insisted on joining in. Throughout her interrogation, the Gestapo offered her a choice they did not extend to her brother. They told her that if she recanted, she would be allowed to live. She turned them down and walked without a tremor to the blade. The chief executioner later testified that he had never seen anyone die as bravely as Sophie Scholl, not a whimper of fear... Not a sigh of regret for the beautiful life she might have led. She just glanced up at the steel, put her head down, and was gone. Is that you? No, and it isn't me either. And finally, consider Nelson Mandela's plea in court. During my lifetime, I've dedicated my life to the struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination, and I have fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society, in which all persons live together in harmony with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to see realized. But, my Lord, if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. Now, even now, many, many years later, that still works. And all three of those passages still work, and they work for the same reason. They're all tightly written, and the burden of the argument is very clear in each case, but that's not what they've got. It's not the words that make us shiver, it's the facts. It's the death, it's the funeral, it's the murder, it's the willingness to die. The poetry, as Wil- Wilfred Owen once said, is in the pity. Now all th- the three of those authors have a really, really big subject. It's life and death. Therefore they can reach for eloquence and it doesn't strain. You can't make that kind of argument if you're talking about the reform of housing benefits you can't do a conventional political speech with arguments like that because you'll sound ridiculous. And in the wake of Barack Obama, lots of people have tried. I've lost count of the number of British politicians who've come to me wanting to be like Barack Obama. And I became so inspired by this ludicrous request that in my book I have a chapter entitled, Why You Are Not Barack Obama.
0: <laughs>
1: and The first reason you're not Barack Obama is that you're not Barack Obama. (laughs) But the second reason is that you're not President of the United States of America either. And the third reason is that you're not a black man, President of the United States of America, a country which, within memory of people alive, separated black people and white people in its bars. Now, that is a big story. And that means when Barack Obama does a speech on race, as he did during the first presidential campaign, that is A moment for great rhetoric and he produced great rhetoric is one of the great modern speeches but it's a great speech not just because he spoke it beautifully and he did or just because it's written beautifully which it is it's also because it's a big enough moment and suddenly the rhetorical gifts are appropriate and the (coughs) most the best example of this is Winston Churchill who when he was a young man in the Indian Army wrote a book called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric and was obsessed with speech making all his life he was a scholar of, of speeches. He knew speeches off by heart. He wrote about it. But he never had a subject that was big enough. And for most of his career, he was a figure of fun. He'd lavish incredible verbal gifts on small subjects. So he'd be talking about the tiniest thing. He'd have the most massively grandiloquent <coughs> rhetoric. And people would think he was comical. And then all of a sudden, he got his subject. And in 1940, in the House of Commons, with Britain Under Threat, he gave the series of the finest political speeches ever yet made. If you just read those speeches again, they're not long but they're perfectly economical. They're brilliantly written. They're they're not well delivered as it it happens because he wasn't a great speaker. Uh, They read rather better than they sound but they read remarkably. And again, it's not just the writing. It's the facts. And in fact, Churchill's a good example of the way rhetoric can be close to untruth because if you were to measure what Churchill told the House of Commons in 1940 against the real facts of the state of the war, Churchill's, sc- he'd never get away with that speech today. Never get away with it today. Because there'd be so much media attention saying, you're telling us lies. The Germans are coming, they're going to get us. And you're telling us it's all going to be okay. It's not going to be okay. And in truth he wasn't sure it would be. But he was doing an inspirational speech and he was sailing quite close to untruth, but he did so gloriously, and he changed the course of the war in doing so. But it's because he finally had a moment that was big enough for what he could do. So let me just end with a couple of reasons why I think it's harder to do that now. Firstly, I think the pace of politics is so much quicker than it used to be. 19th century politicians used to speak three times a year, They'd have four months to prepare. They'd learn their speeches. They would then be produced verbatim in the Times the next day, and there'd be a very respectful commentary on it, there'd be no great sense of crisis around them. Politicians now speak all the time. You've got hundreds of ministers, each one of whom are doing two speeches a week. And there isn't enough to say to fill up all that time. Their diary is just a sort of tyrant. And they just have to go along to the housing conference and do 22 minutes, which has been written by a civil servant. And it's not surprising in that context. There isn't any great rhetoric. So It's not really the writing that's a problem. It's the, it's the pace of politics. These days, they say there's only two types of politician, the quick and the dead. <laughs> and you've got to keep going. There's so, much, so many moments in which you've got to go out there and speak. But the real difficulty is you can't manufacture the pathos. Politics is smaller than it used to be as well in, in rich countries. This is not true in most of the world, but it is true in the rich democracies, that the problems to which politics is addressed are just less acute than they were once upon a time. You know, there are always exceptions to this. You can, you can imagine a great speech in this current presidential campaign, though we've not had one yet. You could imagine, I suppose, another great speech about what kind of European Union we want. but. Generally speaking, the great big arguments about injustice are not happening in quite the same way in the rich democracies as they were. So take something like the credit crunch, which has been a vast and difficult and complex thing. It's very hard to make great rhetoric out of that because it's so technical. It's very difficult to connect it to a a fairly simple sense of justice denied. (coughs) And without some sort of cause, great rhetoric can't really fly. Now, of course, there are great speeches being done in India all the time at the moment. There are great speeches being done in other parts of the world. Kofi Annan has done a series of excellent speeches, and I I say that not just because I wrote some of them. (laughs) But some of the big global problems are difficult to translate into rhetoric also because the speaker never has the authority to, to act alone. So when politics become interdependent between nations, if one person stands up even as they may be a prime minister of a country Britain you know that their fine words cannot be followed by action because action requires so many people so many nations in so many different chambers to come together and the rhetoric loses its force because of that because the sense of doing which needs to follow great rhetoric has now been diminished I think also the heat has gone out of the great ideological wars the long dispute between capitalism and communism produced some fantastic Cold War rhetoric now we don't have that same dispute now we have arguments about varieties of capitalism which are fascinating and interesting but they don't have quite the same pungent rhetorical force and yet the logic of politics compels us to carry on as though this were the same so that's why you get speeches which sound ridiculous So at the moment in British politics, we're conducting an argument about £3 billion of stimulus when we've got a deficit of many, many times that. Or during the last election campaign, there was talk about the Tory black hole in their spending plans of £6 billion. Now, think of that image. A black hole is a cosmic image. And it's equivalent to someone on £20,000 a year saving £200 it's tiny. It's a tiny proportion of public spending. The whole of the political argument, the last general election, was about less than 1% of GDP. And yet the metaphor we were using was was of a cosmic black hole. So our rhetoric is huge and massive in order to exaggerate differences when the actual questions we're talking about are in fact relatively small. And the great enemy of rhetoric, therefore, is progress the wonderful 20th century. Think of the great advances in medicine and life expectancy and prosperity and then the unexpected late-century peace and all of these things in the Western democracies have made great rhetorical posture seem somehow inappropriate. It's hard to have a great speech without that sense of outrage. I think universal suffrage has also changed rhetoric. The audience is less evenly educated than it used to be. In the 19th century and into the early 20th century, politicians would routinely quote Dickens and Shakespeare in the full knowledge that almost all of their listeners would have read those texts, and they would know those references immediately, because their audience was narrow. The franchise was narrow, and the audience of educated people listening was narrower still. Now, that's not true any longer. The audience is much bigger, much more plural, so, in trying to find a language that goes across audiences, there is a tendency for your language to be diminished, to be flatter, to be less ornate. So, we're ru- there was a time when Lloyd George referred in a speech to the great pinnacle of sacrifice, pointing like a rugged finger to heaven. And he was told off in the times the day after for being so lowbrow. Now, if you wrote something like that today, people would think you were the Poet Laureate. Our language is so different It's so much more demotic and ordinary, and we lose something in rhetoric for that. You don't note that you lose everything. Obama's language is ordinary. It's not high in purple prose, but he manages to put the words together in such a way as to make some poetry. And he also sings it so beautifully, so he delivers poetry even out of prose. So it can still be done. I'm not suggesting it can't be done, but it is more difficult because the ornate language now sounds so odd. My final point before I throw it open to you to ask whatever you like, is that the worst enemy of good writing is still the one that Orwell, in his classic essay, Politics and the English Language, pointed out. And that's politics itself. When language is attached to political strategy, writing can become a bit like join the dots. And it's always political choreography and political discipline which flattens meaning and makes people be scared to say something clear. And their speech is never going to take off. But that can be changed. Politicians can get more ambitious. Writers can get clearer. And it's the job of speech writers to help them to do that. And they still can. So that's why I think it's harder to do. I think the great occasions on which great rhetoric, the sort of speeches that end up in anthologies, are fewer than they were. I think that some of the reasons of progress in the 20th century in Britain have made it harder. I think the parties have come closer together. I think political traditions have moved closer together. And all of these things means that when you have a speech with enormous rhetorical exaggeration, it sounds a bit odder than it used to. So it's harder than it was. It's particularly hard in Britain, a country whose power gradually has diminished. If you were speaking as the Prime Minister of Britain in the 19th century in control of a huge worldwide empire, Then that was a big moment. Not so much now. Even a Prime Minister who, in a way, exceeded his brief, as Tony Blair did, there's still the sense of you're only one amongst many, and it's much harder in those circumstances. Over to you.